The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. May 4th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for shopping through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. Well, that hundredth day finally came and went, and that had Donald Trump singing his own praises. I believe, he said, that the first hundred days of my administration has been just about the most successful in our country's history. Our companies are doing better, said Trump, adding, they've just announced fantastic profits. Although corporate profits are up, Trump's first hundred days also saw the slowest economic growth in over three years, a meager seven-tenths of one percent, compared to the two percent and better in previous months. Trump got no major legislation passed in those hundred days. A new Gallup poll shows 54% of Americans don't think this president has changed the way Washington works as he said he would. Three of Trump's executive orders have been struck down by courts and others are being challenged. And although he did name a conservative Supreme Court justice, he faltered on health care and rushed out in that final week of the first hundred days, a one-page budget sketch. Trump had promised a repeal and replace of Obamacare in his first hundred days. It hasn't happened yet. And he did not fulfill his campaign promise of construction starting on that border wall in the first hundred days, nor has he, as promised, overhauled the immigration system. One of the reasons 100 days is still a thing is because it's during those first three months that any new president is normally at the peak of his popularity, a time in which he has the most influence on Congress. If a president cannot define his leadership in the first hundred days, his chances for success only get slimmer after that. In the days that followed the 100-day mark, Trump was less celebratory, telling an interviewer he misses his old life and that he'd discovered that government works differently than business. I thought it would be easier, Trump said, having never served in government or the military before. And he has failed at trying to make the Trump-Russia connection story and the investigations go away. Democrats and others are breathing a bit easier this week. Now that they know they have the power to stop the Trump agenda, even when they don't control the White House, the Senate, or the House of Representatives. Many people were frightened by the Trump agenda. Many still are. The White House had said it would force Democrats to pay for his wall under the threat of a government shutdown and the threat of taking away subsidies that helped 6 million people afford health insurance. But over the weekend, Democratic and Republican lawmakers worked together to pass a government funding bill that will keep the government open through December, Trump's threat of a shutdown, scary as it was, was less of a threat. The taking away of Obamacare subsidies hasn't happened yet. And not one penny of that spending bill is dedicated to building Trump's wall. In fact, the bill actually bans the use of any of this money for that wall. The president had also threatened to cut off funding for sanctuary cities. That's not part of the bill either. Trump and Republicans threatened to cut off money for Planned Parenthood. Didn't happen. Trump's budget called for cutting off money for the National Endowment for Arts and Humanities. There were no cuts. Trump had promised cutting the EPA budget by 30%. It was cut by 1%. At his plan to cut spending at the National Institutes for Health, NIH got the opposite of what Trump wanted. It got a $2 billion raise. Trump also didn't get his cuts in funding for public TV and public radio. In fact, Democrats got an additional $5 billion for new domestic spending. And they did it by playing the Republicans, playing moderates against conservatives, and by playing each of the party's two sub-parties against Trump one at a time.
Both kinds of Republicans disagree with Trump on multiple issues, just not the same issues. And this Trump failure, this Republican failure to achieve their agendas or even make progress is because of the sharp division between Republicans in Congress. That divide is forcing Republicans to sometimes work with Democrats because that's the only way to avoid another costly government shutdown. Even Mitch McConnell has admitted we can't pass anything without them. Fellow Republican Lindsey Graham was even more direct, saying, Democrats cleaned our clock. Conservatives who back Trump are furious, starting with Rush Limbaugh, who bellowed, why even vote Republican? And the more the Democrats can accomplish with divide and conquer, the weaker the Republicans will be in the next budget battle at the end of this year. And anything Congress and the president do of substance has to go through the Senate, where Republicans hold a slim four-vote majority. With a divide-and-conquer approach, Democrats, with the help of well-chosen Republicans, can stop the Trump agenda and a good deal of the Republican agenda. So when Sean Spicer says, as he did Monday, make no mistake, the wall is going to be built, take that with a grain of salt, Trump was outraged, tweeting, our country needs a good shutdown to fix this mess. The last shutdown in 2013 cost the government and the economy tens of billions of dollars. Economic output dropped by $24 billion. Naturally, prominent Democrats and Republicans condemned the irresponsibility of Trump's tweet and or just wrote it off as another Trump tantrum. Trump also proposed in his tweets there should be immediate changes in the rules of the United States Senate so bills he backs can pass with 51 votes instead of the usual 60. It would take 60 votes to change the rules, and Trump and the Republicans don't have those 60 votes. After Trump's tweet, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer took the floor and invoked the Rolling Stones, quoting from one of their biggest hits, You Can't Always Get What You Want. If you have been afraid, take a breath. It doesn't appear the President or Congress can do anything without Democratic approval. Be watchful, be concerned, but be less afraid, at least on most domestic issues. Although some of the credit for defeating other recent attempts at repealing and replacing Obamacare goes to that divided Republican Congress and the Democrats' use of that divide, do not underestimate the influence of the increased involvement by citizens in our political process with all those letters and calls and emails sent to Republican lawmakers. In New Jersey, Congressman Tom MacArthur, who wrote the amendment to repeal and replace that would cut 20 million people or more with pre-existing conditions, got an earful. A thousand of his constituents brought his local office a petition that's 25 feet long. In that letter was a projection that under his proposal, 30,000 people would lose coverage just in his district. Then at the 11th hour on this third attempt, Republican Congressman Fred Upton presented another amendment that would give government help to some people hit by higher premiums for pre-existing conditions from a pool of just $8 billion over five years to cover 20 million people. That's about 200 bucks per year per person, hardly a dent in the new higher premiums that are part of the Republican plan. But it was the kind of amendment that perked up the ears of some moderate Republicans who'd planned to vote no on this third repeal and replace bill, and it gave this bill a fighting chance. The House will vote on the new plan today, and it might actually pass, but there's almost no chance the bill will be passed by the Senate. We'll see. Our own Bob Seska will be along later to talk about how Congress, including Republicans, benefits from Obamacare. And then there's the resistance in the form of protests that have become as regular as Trump's tweets, 
We have now seen the Women's March, the Tax Day March, the Earth Day March. This past weekend, it was the Climate March and the Science March. And on Monday, the May Day March, which turned violent in Portland, as protests in Portland seem to do lately. And even though some of these nationwide marches happen every year, they all had one thing in common this year. They were all also anti-Trump marches and airing of grievances. From coast to coast, people carried clever signs and cartoonish effigies of Trump. 10,000 people gathered in D.C. and thousands more in 200 cities around the country peacefully. They had reason to be concerned, even just based on the news in the 24 hours leading up to the weekend marches. The day before the science march, Trump fired the country's top doctor, the Surgeon General, naming no replacement. In that same day, the Environmental Protection Agency took down from its website its climate change page. Former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy says the removal of that page was a, quote, wholesale wiping out of historical records. And McCarthy said American taxpayers paid for that information and those studies that they can no longer access. It was also on that day we learned that by 2040, there will be no ice in the Arctic in the summer. That means a child born next year could see an iceless Arctic ocean by the time they go to college. But the Trump administration is still disregarding scientific facts. The newest high-ranking official in the federal government's health department believes that abortion increases the risk of breast cancer. That is not true, according to the National Cancer Institute. The new assistant secretary at Health and Human Services has a reason for putting out that false information. It's her agenda. Charmaine Yost is also the past president of the anti-abortion group Americans United for Life, which promotes anti-abortion legislation, including the 20-week ban that now exists in some red states. Yost, who had five children of her own, also worked in the Reagan administration, was a senior advisor in the Mike Huckabee presidential campaign in 2008, and was an advisor and surrogate for the Trump campaign. She's also an executive at a conservative lobbying group in Washington that calls itself American Values. Charmaine Yost got a hearty congratulations on the new gig from House Speaker Paul Ryan, who added, Yet again, this administration demonstrates strong commitment to the pro-life cause. Planned Parenthood's statement was also hearty. Quoting from it, It is unacceptable that someone with a history of promoting myths and false information about women's health is appointed to a government position whose main responsibility is to provide the public with accurate and factual information. Yost has also written that only half of all the women who say they've been raped have actually been raped, that Walmart is involved in homosexualist activism, even though there's no such word as homosexualist, and she said that eating at McDonald's promotes the homosexual lifestyle. She is now the communications director at Health and Human Services. And then there's the new head of Family Planning and Population Affairs for the Department of Health and Human Services, she is Teresa Manning, who's famously said contraception doesn't work, even though that isn't true. Manning, like Yost, also has linked abortion to breast cancer in the face of the facts. That's why there's a march for science, that and citizen concern about our own health and the health of the planet. When a big oil company spilled 5 million gallons of crude into the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago, President Obama put the brakes on offshore drilling especially in the Arctic Ocean, as part of a five-year plan that's still in play. It could take Trump over half of those five years to undo Obama's policy, but that hasn't kept Trump from starting the process. Although Trump signed an executive order to study opening up drilling, Arctic and otherwise, 
It doesn't actually order anything done yet. It does order Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, another drilling supporter, to evaluate the Obama order. And it orders Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to consider scrapping protection of national marine sanctuaries that would allow drilling if those protections were removed. The president said his order would create countless jobs. The environmental group Oceana responded, there are no jobs on a dead planet. Senators on both coasts oppose Trump's offshore drilling plan, and it'll likely be challenged more than once in court. Trump's orders have been overturned by the courts before, as we noted earlier. But Trump's offshore drilling order is a continuation of his policy of fossil fuel industry over environment, having already ordered more digging for coal and the removing of automobile pollution goals. Now to that other thing, that Russia thing. FBI Director James Comey said yesterday it makes him mildly nauseous to think he might have affected the outcome of the November election. He swore to congressional investigators yesterday that was not his intention. Why then did Comey reveal a renewed Clinton investigation just before the election and not reveal the parallel investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia? Normally, the FBI doesn't comment on any ongoing investigations. Comey says he only had two bad choices. Either be accused of a cover-up, concealing new data on an investigation in which he'd already cleared Clinton once, or to reveal the data. He says the honest choice was to reveal, even though that renewed investigation also found no basis for criminal charges against Clinton. As for the Trump investigation, Comey says he treated it no differently than he treated the Clinton investigation, in both cases waiting several months into the probes before revealing them. The difference, of course, is that the Clinton reveal came a dozen days before the election. The Trump reveal came about two months after the inauguration, and only because it had already been revealed by investigative reporters. But Democrats aren't buying Comey's explanation. They insist that Justice Department rules prohibit Comey from speaking publicly about any investigation, especially just before an election. There are suspicions that a few FBI agents were out to get Clinton because of what happened three days before Comey announced the discovery of new emails. Then-Trump advisor Rudy Giuliani told Fox News that the Trump campaign had, quote, a couple of surprises planned. Later, Giuliani said he knew, even before Comey's announcement, there were new emails. Asked about this by congressional investigators, Comey said if he discovers leaks and leakers, quote, there will be severe consequences. This week, Hillary Clinton told a friendly audience she would have been their president were it not for Comey's October surprise. Trump responded on Twitter, of course, that Comey did Clinton a favor by not throwing her in jail, even though both Clinton investigations turned up nothing prosecutable. Meanwhile, it would appear that the president of the United States, the vice president, and the president's spokesman are all lying about Mike Flynn. Last month, Vice President Mike Pence told Fox News that when National Security Advisor Mike Flynn was fired, it was news to him that Flynn was being paid as a foreign agent for Turkey during the campaign, during the transition, and while serving in the White House. First I've heard of it, said Pence. That's impossible. Just after the election, there were multiple reliable published news reports that Flynn was in fact an agent for Turkey with money that likely came from Russia. Even after that, in spite of that, Trump quickly tapped Flynn as his national security advisor. Just days in office, Trump was told by Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates 
that this high-ranking U.S. government official may be subject to blackmail because of Flynn's secret conversations with Russia's ambassador to the U.S. Intelligence reports show that in those routinely monitored Russian conversations, Flynn offered to lighten sanctions on Russia. But even after being informed of a compromised national security advisor, Trump kept Flynn on the job for another three weeks, Flynn still running the president's daily intelligence briefing. Instead, Trump fired the acting attorney general who had brought him the evidence that Flint was a lying target of blackmail. And Trump lied to reporters on Air Force One saying, I haven't seen the report when he was asked about the Flynn scandal. Trump eventually fired Flynn after a record short 24 days on the job, accusing Flynn of lying to Mike Pence about Flynn's conversation with Russia's U.S. ambassador. But Pence already knew the truth, even if he wasn't speaking it. Pence was in charge of the transition and in charge of the vetting of Trump's top staff, including that of Mike Flynn. By the time Pence said this was the first he'd heard of it, he had long before gotten two letters from Flynn's lawyers informing him that Flynn was an unregistered foreign agent. The lawyers advised Pence that if Flynn didn't get registered, he could be disqualified from serving as national security advisor. Flynn's lawyers told this to Pence twice. NBC News says the Trump transition team knew about Flynn and Russia and Turkey. But to quote Pence in March, first I've heard of it. Meanwhile, back at 1600, presidential spokesman Sean Spicer said the White House has no papers on Flynn to turn over to the investigators who've demanded them because the White House didn't do a background check since the Pentagon had already done one. President Trump also said last week there had been no White House background check on Flynn. But Spicer and the president appear to be lying about that. NBC has confirmed the White House did do a background check on Flynn, but quotes their source as saying the check was done, quote, very casually. Otherwise, when it comes to the selection of a national security advisor, Trump clams up about Flynn now. When reporters at photo ops try to ask Trump about Flynn, he goes silent and turns his head away until the reporters are ushered out of the room. So is Mike Flynn an innocent pawn in all this, or is he a general who turned bitter after his demotion in the Obama administration? Obama fired Flynn as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, reportedly because of Flynn's style of leadership. So Flynn retired. Retired military officers are prohibited from taking foreign payments and certainly prohibited from acting as foreign agents. Flynn was warned about this in writing. He ignored the warning. He even took money to pay tribute to Russia's TV network. He illegally took that money. He illegally served as a foreign agent. And although Flynn has now filed retroactively, he broke the law by failing to register. And then he lied about it. And all of this while U.S. intelligence and the FBI and congressional committees investigate connections between the Trump Organization and the Russians who staged a cyber attack on the U.S. during the 2016 campaign. We would later learn that Flynn was being paid by Turkey with money that may have come from Russia. Flynn is now under investigation by the Pentagon's Inspector General and by the House Oversight Committee. This is a busy time for investigators of the Trump-Russia connection. On Tuesday of this week, the entire Senate Intelligence Committee took a bus to CIA headquarters to look at classified documents related to that agency's investigation. Yesterday, they heard testimony from FBI Director James Comey. Today, they're hearing more from Comey, this time behind closed doors, along with hearing from current National Security Agency Chief Mike Rogers. 
On Monday, they'll hear from former National Intelligence Director James Clapper and, most dramatically of all, former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates. Yates has a story to tell, and word is she's eager to tell it. We now know that Yates went to the White House six days after the inauguration to express serious concerns to White House lawyers about Mike Flynn's side jobs with Russia and Turkey and to issue, quote, a forceful warning to the White House that Flynn had been lying about those connections. Trump fired Yates two days later, but kept Mike Flynn for another three weeks. As the president, the vice president, the White House chief of staff, and the White House spokesman claimed ignorance and claimed that they had acted quickly once they knew about Flynn. Sally Yates is reportedly eager to set the record straight, highly motivated, we're told. Former Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice, meanwhile, is refusing to testify for congressional investigators who had promised Trump they would look into his unsupported claim that Obama tapped the phones at Trump Tower. Stay tuned. Name your favorite dictators, the latest on Korea, the death of net neutrality, Bob's commentary, and more after this. Being a mom can be a thankless job. You know what I mean because you know what you did as a kid. Now think about the things she did, the sacrifices she made to give you a better life. And remember all the times you've thought about something your mom taught you, wisdom you carry with you to this very day. Tell her you remember as often as possible, especially on Mother's Day. Pro Flowers is the perfect way to tell her. Beautiful flowers, guaranteed fresh for seven days or your money back, and they're not kidding. I've used Pro Flowers time and again, and they have never let me down. She's always delighted when that box from Pro Flowers arrives at her door. And right now, because you listen to this report, get Mom Pro Flowers 100 Blooms Bouquet in a glass vase for just $19.99 plus shipping and handling. For five bucks more, they'll also include some gourmet chocolates. Tell mom you remember with a hundred blooms and a glass vase for just $19.99 plus shipping and help power this show with the code RELM at proflowers.com. Just click the blue microphone in the upper right corner and type in the code RELM. And don't forget to include all the moms in your life when you go to proflowers.com. Thank you for using my sponsors and for also supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. So who's your favorite contemporary brutal dictator? We certainly know Trump's top five list. To our knowledge, no past president has spoken a single kind word about brutal dictators. But Trump has, repeatedly, as recently as this week, when he called North Korea's Kim Jong-un a smart cookie and said he'd be honored to meet with Kim someday. Other presidents have avoided praising Kim as he orders his political opponents killed, including his own uncle, and as he continues to starve his own citizens, spending money instead on military force, including nuclear weapons that may soon threaten the U.S. But Trump has other favorite brutal dictators. A month and two days ago, Trump had Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi up to the White House, where Trump told that brutal dictator... You have a great friend and ally in the U.S. and in me. Sisi had also recently squeaked out a win from a shaky election, but also ordered his opponent shot to death, which is one reason the U.S. had cut off military aid to Egypt. Last month, Trump praised Sisi for, quote, doing a fantastic job. Two weeks ago, Trump put in a congratulatory phone call to another dictator, the president of Turkey, Recep Erdogan, Erdogan had just won re-election, narrowly, and with a lot of voting irregularities. Read that by cheating. 
On Sunday of this week, Trump chatted with the brutal dictator of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, who's encouraged the killing of thousands of his own citizens who are suspected of selling or even using drugs. Duterte has even killed some of these people with his bare hands. No arrests, no trials, executions on the streets and in people's homes, including innocent people. The White House describes this week's conversation with Duterte as very friendly. And Trump invited this crazed killer to the White House in that call and didn't even notify the National Security Council or the State Department that he'd even be making that call. Trump appears to be making these calls on his whims, acting based on a flow of consciousness, whatever comes into his head. And then there's Vladimir Putin, who also got a call from Trump this week after praising Putin as a great leader during the U.S. presidential campaign that Russia cyber-attacked. They tentatively agreed to chat in person this summer at a summit they're both attending in Germany. Interestingly, we learned of that meeting not from the White House as we normally would, but instead we heard it from the Kremlin. On the subject of North Korea, the South Korean military has announced that the new U.S. missile defense system known as THAAD is now in place and online, ready to strike down North Korean missiles aimed at the South. Last week, Trump said our ally South Korea should have to pay for the system or have its trade deal with the U.S. torn up, although other administration officials later had to say that won't happen. But Trump's remark has made South Koreans leery of him, of the U.S., and even of that missile system. China has also opposed the missile system because China, too, is now in the system's line of fire. North Korea says the completion of that missile system will lead to a thermonuclear war on the Korean peninsula. Kim Jong-un may be especially frustrated since his latest missile launch failed. That's three failures in a row. Trump seems nearly as provocative, saying this week, there's a chance we could have a major, major conflict with North Korea. Absolutely, said Trump. Trump's words concerned Senator John McCain so greatly, he told our nervous allies, Japan and South Korea, to pay attention to what Trump does, not to what he says. This you can worry about. A fascinating side story about North Korea. Kim Jong-un has ordered farmers in his country to grow marijuana. His government's telling farmers that hemp oil can be used for cooking and that its grain can be used for animal feed, which is true, but there are concerns Kim wants that oil to use as fuel for military drones. It had been Three and a half decades since a sitting American president addressed the National Rifle Association, Trump began by praising the late actor Charlton Heston, who also championed guns. Before getting to the meat of the matter, Trump spent the first seven minutes of his speech talking about his election night victory over Hillary Clinton. Wasn't that a great evening, Trump mused. Do you remember that evening, he asked. It was a great evening, he added. Not going to forget that evening. Apparently not. Trump took a moment to slam other Democrats, including Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, calling her Pocahontas because she has claimed some Native American ancestry. But then he got right to it. Good news, Trump told the gun crowd. The eight-year assault on your Second Amendment freedoms has come to an end. Gun laws actually changed very little during the Obama years. He certainly never seized the public's guns, as gun groups said he would. But Trump continued, responsible gun ownership saves lives, he said. Over the weekend, 
A man despondent about his finances and a breakup with his girlfriend shot seven people at a birthday pool party in San Diego. All but one of them died. Earlier this year, the Republican Congress approved and Trump signed a bill allowing those who are registered as mentally ill to once again be able to buy guns. Even though immigrants commit fewer than half as many crimes per capita as do U.S. citizens, there's a new federal hotline for victims to report immigrants' crimes and get assistance. The hotline went up last Wednesday and was immediately mocked by critics. But thanks to the hashtag Alien Day from a group of anti-Trump past and present members of the military, hotline operators were overwhelmed with prank calls from people calling to report space aliens. The hotline turned into a 20-minute wait line. An immigration spokesman said that if it kept up, his agency would just add more operators. Members of Congress also enjoy the benefits of Obamacare, and they will continue to. With that story and a comment, here's Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. We learned this week that Trump care isn't dead. In fact, members of the House Freedom Caucus have reportedly tossed their support behind yet another attempt to repeal and replace President Obama's Affordable Care Act. This comes after new language was inserted to allow states to opt out of covering essential health benefits, as well as a clause letting states withdraw from covering pre-existing conditions. TrumpCare 2.0 will apparently also enable insurers to return to charging sick people unaffordable rates in high-risk pools, pricing them out of their coverage. We also learned that an amendment was inserted into TrumpCare that would exempt members of Congress from the opt-out language. I'll get back to that, but this isn't the first time we've heard about a congressional exemption concerning health care. During the turbulent history of the Affordable Care Act, you've probably heard more than a few congressional Republicans shrieking about how Congress was exempted from Obamacare. The point of this lie was to suggest that the ACA was so awful and so ridiculous that the Obama administration offered Congress a waiver to avoid it. It's difficult to encapsulate in any language, living or dead, the sheer intellectual violence of this lie. First of all, let's rewind to the marathon health care reform debate of 2009 to 2010. In an effort to flim-flam the Democrats, Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, proposed an amendment that would force members of Congress and congressional staffers to abandon the existing federal employees' health benefits plan and instead sign up for insurance policies via the ACA marketplaces, otherwise known as exchanges, just like ordinary Americans. Again, the point was to illustrate the shoddy and undesirable nature of Obamacare. The idea was that Democrats would balk at this notion, thus undermining their pitch for how great the law will be. Instead, Democrats called Grassley's bluff and accepted the amendment. So thanks to the Grassley Amendment, if members of Congress and their staffers want employer-based insurance coverage as part of their salary, they have to buy insurance through the marketplaces. Here's the problem, though. Like most employers, public or private, the federal government pays about 75% of the cost of the monthly premiums for its employees as a benefit. But when members of Congress and their aides were bumped over to the exchanges, they lost that premium-sharing benefit, which amounted to a significant pay cut and especially brutal development for low-wage staffers. During the summer of 2013, however, the Office of Personnel Management corrected the problem by creating a rule that allowed the government to cover 75% of the new ACA marketplace insurance premiums. 
as an employer, the government has the prerogative to do this, just as it would be the prerogative of Trader Joe's or Walmart to offer the same benefit. But Republicans seized on the rule and twisted it around, telling the world it was an exemption from Obamacare for Congress. This was insane, especially since none of this would ever have happened if Grassley hadn't tried to score cheap political points by monkeying around with the health care reform law. And here's the next twist. It turns out that former House Speaker John Boehner worked extensively with then-Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid and other Democrats to reestablish the government premium subsidy for congressional workers and members. In fact, according to Politico, Boehner and Reid collaborated to schedule a secret meeting at the White House to convince President Barack Obama that it was important to reestablish this coverage. In other words, there is no Congressional Obamacare exemption, and there never was. In fact, members of Congress must buy insurance via the District of Columbia's Obamacare exchange if they want employer-based coverage like before. This is the law. And the rule that Boehner repeatedly tried to misrepresent as an exemption was a rule that he himself lobbied for. Okay, let's fast forward to last Wednesday. According to the latest version of Trumpcare, the opt-out language won't apply to members of Congress. In other words, members of Congress can't be denied coverage due to pre-existing conditions ever again. You, on the other hand, or your sick or injured loved one, can absolutely be denied coverage. Specifically, you can be priced out of the marketplace if your state chooses to allow it under Trump care. Likewise, members of Congress can't lose their essential health benefits, but you can if your state opts out. So we have at least two layers of Republican lies here. The GOP members of Congress who bitched endlessly about how Congress had exempted itself from the ACA were in fact required to have employer-based coverage through the exchanges, a feature of Obamacare they explicitly demanded. Years later, as they work to repeal and replace the ACA, they're making sure they don't lose the best aspects of Obamacare coverage. All told, the Republicans want to repeal your ACA coverage while keeping all the best parts for themselves. That speaks volumes about how the GOP really feels about Obamacare's signature achievement, not to mention how Republican legislators feel about ordinary Americans' health and their well-being. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. And I am proud to now be one of the regular guests on that program. Arkansas is out of the execution business for a while, having used the last of its death drugs one week ago tonight. Arkansas is fresh out of midazolam and apparently cannot get its hands on any more. It used half of what it had on hand to kill four men over an eight-day period that ended last Thursday. The state's goal was to execute eight men in a 10-day period, so Arkansas, in the end, got half of what it wanted. And while all that was going on, an inmate in the Milwaukee County Jail died in his cell of dehydration after guards intentionally denied him water. Terrell Thomas was a 38-year-old with bipolar disorder who was in jail after allegedly shooting a man in a Milwaukee gambling casino. Thomas was in an isolation cell when he died of what's officially called profound dehydration. It turns out that county jailers had denied him water for seven days while also denying him a mattress. They shut off the water to his isolation cell. There has since been an inquest that determined that Thomas's death was a homicide and that seven jail employees and their supervisor should be charged with felony abuse. Now it's up to the Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm to do the prosecuting 
if he will just do it. Chisholm says he'll consider the inquest recommendation and that he may charge all seven or just a few or none at all. In Dallas, the police gun killing of a black teenager has been ruled a homicide. 15-year-old Jordan Edwards died of a gunshot wound to the head, the shot fired by a police rifle in what suburban police call an unknown altercation. Bulk Springs police were answering a 911 call about drunken teens wandering a neighborhood. The officers involved say they heard gunfire and saw a car backing toward them in an aggressive manner. But the police chief says we now know the car was actually moving away from the officers, not toward them. And it turns out the teens had not been drinking. At no point were the kids violent that night. The late Jordan Edwards, dead at 15, was an outstanding athlete, popular with his classmates, and an A student. In South Carolina, the former South Carolina police officer who was caught on video killing black motorist Walter Scott is pleading guilty. Michael Slager is facing state murder charges and federal civil rights charges for shooting the unarmed 50-year-old five times in the back as he was running away from a traffic stop. That ex-cop could spend the rest of his life in prison. But the Justice Department says it will not file civil rights charges against the officers involved in the death of Alton Sterling, whose shooting by police set off clashes in the streets throughout Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Sterling was shot while he was on his back on the ground because one officer yelled, he's got a gun. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has made it clear he does not intend to go after police, apparently even when they use excessive force, including when it may have been inspired by racial profiling. But career prosecutors say the outcome of this case would have been the same under the Obama administration, as there just wasn't enough evidence that the officers acted on premeditated racial motives. Proving civil rights charges has always been difficult for federal prosecutors, and experts say it would have been even harder in this case. The two officers involved may, however, still face local criminal charges. Among the executive orders signed by Trump last week, one finally addressed the topic of education. It's in order to find out how much less the federal government could do in education. Alongside Trump at that signing was his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, a billionaire who spent a lifetime and a lot of money promoting private schools over public. The order calls for a study of rules that could be eliminated to minimize the government's role in education, shifting those duties to state and local governments. But it appears Trump already knows what the study will conclude, saying local communities know best. But a study to confirm what Trump already believes doesn't actually do anything. Critics say it was mostly for show. Quoting a Democratic Party spokeswoman, this order changes nothing. Trump isn't signing it to improve education. He's doing it to put a fake point on the board in his first hundred days. But this week, Trump set his sights on another change in education government vouchers to help pay for private schooling, which is the reason he nominated DeVos for the education job. And an internal White House memo calls for ending Michelle Obama's Let Girls Learn program, which provided education opportunities for adolescent girls in developing countries through the Peace Corps. And that same day, Trump's Agriculture Secretary, Sonny Perdue, announced a relaxing of the federal effort to make school lunches healthier, another cause championed by Michelle Obama. The program had already been funded, including $5 million rounded up from private donors in the final year of the Obama administration. A year after small business and ordinary people won a victory over who gets the best internet speeds, the Trump administration is taking back that victory. 
Trump's new FCC chairman has announced he wants the agency to start rolling back the rules on net neutrality. Under this change, AT&T and Comcast can start slowing down or even blocking some of your web traffic and ransom higher fees for higher speeds. Big media companies can afford that. Small media companies, startups, cannot. And that means fewer jobs. Like other Trump officials, this new FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, says the industry can police itself. And Pai says AT&T and Comcast and the like should not be treated as public utilities, even though millions of Americans signed a petition saying they should, even though that was the law successfully pushed through by the people. Quoting one Democratic senator, the Trump administration should expect a tsunami of resistance from a grassroots movement of Americans. The FCC is already getting an earful from a wide range of groups in letters and emails, all of which are arriving very quickly. Real news about fake news. Airline and showbiz updates. Best prom date ever, and it takes one to know one. In the third and final segment, up next. A smooth, clean shave from a blade that feels expensive but comes straight to my door at half the cost of the big-name brands. That's what I love about shaving with products from Harry's. From the hefty, balanced handle that fits your hand to the precision-engineered five-blade cartridges that come with a trimmer blade, a lubricating strip, and a travel cover, and Harry's rich, lathering shave gel. It all started when a couple of ordinary guys named Jeff and Andy got tired of getting ripped off on blade prices. A certain company relentlessly jacked their prices and made a fortune while we all spent a fortune. Jeff and Andy wanted to fix shaving, so they started by cutting out the middlemen. They bought their own factory, one that's been making blades for more than a century, so now they can ship top-quality blades straight to you. The result? Quality products at your door for half of what you've been paying. I said half. And that's the Harry story. Be part of it. Jeff and Andy are so confident you'll love their products, they want you to go to harrys.com right now to try their new shave set free. A $13 value, but all you pay is the shipping. Sign up at harrys.com slash R-E-L-M. And because you listen to this newscast, Jeff and Andy will even throw in a free post-shave balm. But only... If you log on to harrys.com slash R-E-L-M. Since Trump's first hundred days have not gotten rave reviews from most people, Democrats, Republicans, and journalists, maybe that's why Trump gave the media an F for its coverage of his first hundred days. As the first president in memory to skip the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner to honor freedom of the press, Trump went instead to Harrisburg, PA, to tell supporters he was happier being with them than the reporters. Much, much better people, said Trump. Despite Trump's absence, the dinner was sold out as usual, raising money for reporters who need legal defense and for journalism scholarships. The media, said history's most unpopular president, deserves a very big, fat, failing grade. Meanwhile, the Trump administration continues its assault on the free press that's guaranteed by the First Amendment. White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus saying they're looking at changing the libel laws that protect reporters. Even a Republican objected to that. Congressman Justin Amash of Michigan urged Americans to, quote, fight any effort to abridge freedom of speech or press. Yesterday was World Press Freedom Day. Now that we know Russia hired a 1,000 hackers to attack email accounts for Clinton and Democrats and used those hackers to post fake stories about Clinton across social media, one American with the means to do so is fighting back. Billionaire Pierre Omidyar 
the founder of eBay, is spending $100 million to back real reporters to help fight any future attacks of fake news. To be clear, fake news is what the Russians planted in their campaign to boost Trump and defeat Clinton during the presidential campaign. That, by the way, is the only acceptable definition of fake news. Definitions you hear from Trump or his supporters applying it to genuine media stories they dislike is simply a misuse of the term. Mr. Omayar is sending his millions to a worldwide group of investigative journalists around the world, 190 reporters in more than 65 countries, hoping the truth will drown out the fake stuff. The Anti-Defamation League is getting some of the money to build a command center in Silicon Valley. Omidyar's charity foundations already donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to worldwide efforts toward government transparency and the fight against corruption. But right now, reporters need the dough more than ever. Warren Buffett's newspaper company has just made more cutbacks in its newsrooms across the country, eliminating nearly 300 more jobs at nearly three dozen newspapers. Quoting the journalism group, getting Mr. Omidyar's money, at a time when autocrats, demagogues, criminals, dodgy businessmen, and other shady characters seek to enrich and empower themselves at the expense of society, it's more important than ever that journalists can remain the world's independent eyes and ears. YouTube says it too is cracking down on fake news by denying advertising to any video with fewer than 10,000 views. YouTube's motives are more financial than political, however, saying it got complaints from advertisers whose ads appeared on fake news videos. Walmart, GM, J.P. Morgan Chase, Pepsi, Johnson & Johnson, and Starbucks had all pulled ads they found on hate speech videos. But YouTube says that 10,000 views threshold allows it time to review the content for objectionable material. And Facebook has just hired a former top executive from the New York Times to stop the spread of fake news on its site of the sort we saw during the election campaign and to help legitimate publishers of news make the money they need and deserve. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has, meanwhile, fine-tuned Facebook's algorithm to help block the posting of fake news. Facebook's also hired 3,000 people to monitor live video feeds and act quickly to stop those that feature violence against others and sometimes themselves. The new army at Facebook will also watch for child exploitation and hate speech. United Airlines is trying to keep its recent public image nightmare from recurring. Since last we met, United announced 10 policy changes in the aftermath of that brutal and bloody removal of a passenger who declined to surrender his reserved seat to make way for a United crew member. For one thing, United won't be so quick to call in the airport cops when a passenger says no. It's also pledged to retrain its employees in the care and handling of difficult customers and to offer up to $10,000 for passengers who get bumped because of overbooking. United promised also not to overbook so many flights, forcing people already in their seats to be bumped to a later flight. All airlines overbook, some by as much as 100%. Two airlines do not overbook, JetBlue and Southwest. Passengers least likely to be bumped are frequent flyers, those who paid in full, and people traveling as a family. But overbooking could end completely after the congressional hearings this week on how airlines treat their customers. The Transportation Committee hearing included United CEO Oscar Munoz, who apologized again for United's passenger-dragging incident. The lawmakers told the airline executives, either police yourselves or we'll do it for you. It apparently needs repeating. 
when you're in your seat on an airplane, fasten your seatbelt low and tight around your waist and keep it fastened. There was blood all over the cabin and over two dozen passengers were hurt when an Aeroflot flight from Moscow to Bangkok hit severe turbulence. Turbulence has always been unpredictable, unseeable by both pilots and radar. But now there's more turbulence. Scientists say the increased carbon dioxide in our air has changed the climate, adding more turbulence to the transatlantic jet stream. And a lot of American passengers have also grown too comfortable with unbuckling. Another head rolls at Fox News Channel in the midst of the network's sexual harassment scandals. Over the past year, Roger Ailes, the CEO of Fox News, was let go for harassment charges, and popular host Bill O'Reilly was cut loose for the same thing. Now, after 20 years at Fox, co-president Bill Shine has left the building. Word is he was too close to Roger Ailes and turned a blind eye to the sexual harassment. Shine will be replaced by a female executive, Suzanne Scott, even though there are also questions about her role in the regime that long-tolerated sexual harassment. Last week at this time, we were concerned about a possible strike against the producers of some of our favorite TV shows, from Walking Dead to Stephen Colbert's Late Show. This week, I can report the strike is off. It's been settled. The writers will now get more properly paid for Netflix series and limited series that have fewer episodes. Comedy writers for paid TV shows will get residuals in addition to their salaries for the first time ever. And all the TV writers got a raise. Those for pay TV got a 15% pay hike. The writers will also now get better health care and protection for their jobs if they have to care for a newborn. Because the last strike hurt the TV industry and the economy and the tax base in Los Angeles County. 96% of the writers had voted to strike if they didn't get those gains, even though the last strike cost them collectively $33 million in income. Hollywood has instead a new concern since we last spoke. Hackers who've already attacked other businesses and even a police department in the U.S. have now leaked the new season of Orange is the New Black before its actual release date, bypassing the show's owner, Netflix. The hackers first tried to extort money from Netflix with the blackmail threat of pre-releasing its new season of Orange. Netflix refused to pay the ransom and it's now suffering for it. Netflix says the hacker, known as the Dark Overlord, found an opening in the computers of a digital company that's involved in the production of Orange. All of Hollywood is worried, as the hacker tweeted afterward, who's next? Fox, IFC, Nat Geo, ABC? Those are networks that use the same digital production company as Netflix, which means their shows may have already been stolen also. Oh, what fun we're going to have, tweeted the hacker, apparently trying to sound like a Batman villain, adding... We're not playing games anymore. Fate of the Furious was the top movie last week for the third week in a row, picking up another $20 million. Will it stay for four weeks? And what's new this week? Here's a preview from Realm Network Arts and Entertainment Editor Omar Latiri, brought to you by Fandango. Opening this weekend, May 5th, 2017. In limited release, we have The Lovers. Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts play a long-married, dispassionate couple who are both in the midst of serious affairs, but on the brink of calling it quits, a spark between them suddenly reignites, leading them into an impulsive romance with, of all people, each other. Rated R. There's The Dinner, a mystery drama about a family that gets together to discuss their darkest issues. 
Starring Richard Gere, Laura Linney, Steve Coogan, and Rebecca Hall, the dinner is rated R. Also in limited release is Mr. Chibs, a documentary about former NBA All-Star Kenny Anderson. Ten years after retirement from his career as a professional athlete, Anderson finds that basketball is easy, it's life that's hard. Facing his personal demons head-on, the charismatic Anderson must come to terms with his past in order to find a way to pay it forward. And finally, the only movie hitting wide release this weekend, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. The latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has Peter Quill and his fellow Guardians hired by a powerful alien race to protect their precious batteries from invaders. As the adventure unfolds, the mystery of Peter's parentage is revealed. Rated PG-13. For Buzz Burbank News and Comment, I'm Omar Lajiri. Thanks, Omar. For theaters and showtimes, previews, tickets, and so much more, and to support this free news, please use and bookmark the Fandango link you'll find at buzzburbank.com. As it turns out, even the dark side has a bright side. A new study at the University of California in Riverside shows that worrying can protect you from harm and even unpleasant interactions with others. Not all worry is destructive or futile, according to a psychology professor at UC. It is, she says, an emotional buffer that motivates you to plan and prepare for the worst, that it will make you cautious in a way that avoids traumas of all kinds. According to her study, worry helps you heal from traumatic events by protecting you from further injury, mental or physical. Worry is what makes you go to the dermatologist to ask about that spot. And worry about that spot makes you use sunscreen. The author says worriers tend to do better in school, do more research, and solve problems more successfully than those who don't worry so much. Of course, too much of a good thing is a bad thing. The professor says it's all about worrying in just the right amounts. Both smart and pretty, it's hard to believe no guys asked Priscilla Samey to the prom at her high school in Minnesota. But the African-American senior went to the prom and she was not alone. She took as her date and was photographed there with her acceptance letter from Harvard. She said no to the invitation she got from Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Brown, and Cornell. Her tweet with that prom photo has been retweeted over 150,000 times so far. And from the home office in Florida, a Pasco County Sheriff's officer stopped a scooter on US-19 this week because it was dark and because the scooter's headlight wasn't working. The writer had bungee-corded his cell phone to a side mirror using its tiny LED flashlight, as if. The Sheriff's office tweeted about it, of course, saying this lighting method wasn't such a bright idea. And finally... In Augusta, Michigan, Annette Tolis and her significant other, Kevin Bartell, preferred to pay their water bill to the village clerk in person. But it seemed to them the clerk was never in her office. Kevin was frustrated, and he complained. And then the mailman brought the next bill, addressed to Annette Tolis and, quote, the a-hole who lives there, too. But village clerk Julie Green had used the entire word. After Kevin's interview on the local TV news, the clerk apologized, saying she'd been highly unprofessional, that she's truly sorry and embarrassed and promised it would never happen again. I hope, she said in her apology letter, you find it in your heart to forgive me. Probably not going to happen. The clerk's been suspended for two weeks, which means she won't be in the office at all. And if Kevin gets his way, she won't be coming back. 
He says that since the clerk did this and lied about it initially, admitting it now in the hope it'll go away just isn't enough. Quoting him, I'm 99.9% sure I'm the a-hole she's referring to. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening. And thanks for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. Buzz, 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 buzz. Buzz, 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 buzz. Buzz, 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 buzz. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.